Hey, it is another edition of Talking Fußball Direct, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week we thought the matchups were just so good, we would let the games just speak for themselves. Well, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe we just need to keep talking because talking is in our name. With me this week is a top-notch returning guest. You may know him from some uh, Breaking the Lines content on Twitter or uh, his German football newsletter. It is Adam Kahn. Hello. Hey, Matt. It's a pleasure to be back on again. I'm not sure that I'm going to have as many good jokes as that one in the, in the intro right there, but yeah, pleasure to be back on again and hopefully it'll be a great show. Uh, you know, I'm not expecting big jokes. I don't even think that was a big joke. When you do like 300 episodes of something, you got to do silly things now and again. Yeah, let's sort of take this uh, one step at a time. We did have a really great match day. Any particular, you know, just little tidbits before we get started? Things you want to billboard here? Yeah, I mean, I think all the big games lived up to their billing, some of the smaller ones as well. I think that, yeah, nobody really came away from this one disappointed unless you're Maybe a Dortmund or Fürth fan. I think those are the only ones that can really say, yeah, this one didn't go as we wanted. Yep, unless you are a masochist and a Fürth or Dortmund fan, this was a pretty great week. Okay, we will be right back with lots more talking points from Match Day 21. But, you know, while I have you here, please do subscribe to the pod wherever you get your pods. Leave us a five-star rating. Help us spread the word. It helps a lot. And do please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Our Scandal series continues over there. You can learn more about all of the biggest scandals to hit the Bundesliga since its inception. The latest episode, in fact, forced me to revisit a very frustrating edition of the relegation playoff. And I'll let you figure out which one that was. Back in a moment. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball Direct, where we talk about the best of the match day just gone. This was match day 21. You know, I feel like this weekend, it's very, very easy to pick out a lot of bests. <laughs> there were a lot of bests. It was a huge weekend in the Bundesliga. We're sort of heading into the final third of the season. And, you know, we had two irresistible fixtures that pitted some teams with the most European pedigree against each other, as well as a third game between some like unlikely teams who've been working hard to break into that European club this season. You know, that was Cologne versus Freiburg, the latter one, as well as Bayern versus Leipzig and Dortmund against Leverkusen. Woo! Adam, the news hound in me anyway is pretty sure that we need to start with the most recent event first. So we got to go to the Westfalen Stadion because the result there was a doozy. It was a really weird start. The two teams uh, traded own goals and uh, both looked pretty solid going forward for the first 15 minutes or so. But then everything changed and the goals got really good, uh, really good. And did I neglect to mention that all of those goals were going Leverkusen's way? You had this like sumptuous countering team goal finished by Florian Wirtz. You had a top shelf free kick from Robert Andrich. And then like this rocket of a half volley in the aftermath of a corner kick from Jonathan Ta of all people. That last goal came eight minutes into the second half. It was 4-1 after that. And, you know, just about everything happened after that was kind of, you know, 
academic. 5-2, the final. There were two goals after that one, but they were kind of, as the Germans call it, Ergebnis Cosmetic. You know, it doesn't really matter. This was a wild result. And this is also the kind of result, at least in my opinion, that could really change a lot of minds, both within Dortmund, the club, and in the public's eye about where Dortmund and, and Leverkusen are headed, respectively. What are your takeaways from this crazy game? Yeah, man, I think crazy is really the place to start. Just like you said, we're recording this on Sunday, just a couple hours after the match. And I think we both still haven't really recovered and taken it all in. I mean, I'm not really a betting man myself, but if there's ever a game you'd bet on both teams to score, it would be Dortmund versus Leverkusen, two sides that absolutely just live off their attacking abilities. And defensively, it's, well, why don't we just try and outstore the opponent? And today that was Leverkusen that got the job done. And from that sense, I think it was just a very naive performance in many ways from Dortmund because you saw how high Rafa Guerrero pushed up offensively. He's a left back that loves to get forward, but when you see the attacking dynamism that Leverkusen has with the likes of Wurz, Diaby, and Bellarabi, you know, pushing so many men into these attacking phases just leaves you susceptible. And like so many times this season, we saw again from Leverkusen how much potential they have in these counterattacking situations and. They're just lethal in these in these areas. And when you have Jonathan Todd putting in volleys from corner kicks as well, well, yeah, everything's going your way at that point. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I guess during the game to a degree, and certainly after the game, there was talk both on the broadcast and on social media, and I think probably in bar rooms across Germany, about Beifalbe's inability to deal with transitions. You know, they would lose the ball, in the opposite half, their rest defense would just get sliced and diced by those those very quick Leverkusen players. Even when they were trying to start up new plays, you know, building out of the back, and they would just get pressed into mistakes like some of those earlier goals. The knock on Dortmund for such a long time has been an inability to sort of avoid dumb defensive mistakes. But these feel a little bit more more fundamental than just dumb mistakes. Yeah, and like I said, I think a lot of that has to do with this tactical setup because I think that Rosa is a, a forward first manager. He is lives off his attacking game plan, this gating pressing system, this high attacking vertical play, which sees Dolman try and congest the opposition with a lot of players in their own half, which of course is very good. But then when that first line of pressure gets beat, that's when you see these big problems. And having a center back like Zadudu, for example, who I think, I mean, he didn't show it today, but is a guy that has a lot of ability in possession, especially that he's left-footed, uh, a bit of a rarity in modern football to see left-footed center backs. But I think that Zadudu, albeit very good in possession often, you know, having him defend in, in the left-wide channels against a Bellarabi or a Diaby, it's just it's a recipe for disaster. And I think that Dolman had to, had to test themselves a little bit too Leverkusen's strengths, a bit more like what Leverkusen did, because I looked at that substitution of uh, Kusanu on in the second half around the 60th minute where Dalton was building up ahead of steam. You saw that Seawan adapted, put in a, a five-at-the-back system to completely negate um, Dalton's attacking pressure, and just that ability to adapt on the fly is something that I think that Rosa has been underwhelming with, be it at, at Gladbach or now at Dalton. Yeah, it's interesting you point out that substitution, which, you know, had it happened at an earlier junction in the game, or if maybe he had started with that system, or if they had been protecting a somewhat slimmer lead, might have felt risky, or, you know, to some people, maybe even cowardly. But like, man, <laughs> when you're up 4-1... <laughs> 
at the Westfalen Stadion, like play it back six for all I care. Like, you know, shut that door. I guess even before that juncture, however, I was impressed because, you know, like I said, the early stages of this game, this looked like it might be one where it was just two sort of very aggressive punchers trading blows. But it really turned out to be only one of them didn't really have the ability to hold the other off. I mean, what do you think made Leverkusen so solid in this game? I think that more so than Leverkusen being solid defensively doesn't mean we haven't seen that at all really this season. I think it was more so that Dortmund just just failed to find that final push going forward. And I think a part of that is just that you see too many similar players on the field. I looked at kind of a lineup with Torden Hazard and Royce together, and I just feel like those are two players that rather than complement each other, they almost take each other's space away. You know, they're, they're players that both want the ball to feed, don't want to look in behind. And you saw a bit more when Gio Reyna came on that, of course, he makes more mistakes. He's coming off a long-term injury and everything, but you know, he wants the ball behind. He wants the ball not always to feet, but also into the channels. Is a bit more risky in possession. And that also brought Bayfoe Bay a bit more into life when we mentioned those first 15 minutes after halftime when they when they sparked a bit. And of course, you also have to mention the, the big miss of Erling Holland because I think that not only are his goals vital to this team, as we've seen so many times since his boo from um, Salzburg, but also Malin through the center just didn't look like that, that player that he's been for much of this rook runda. I think that... Dortmund still tried to play a, a very much a, a crossing game, even though it just didn't make sense for him. I remember in the first half, just this one ball from Thomas Munier that was looking almost for this Norwegian monster in the box and then saw little bald-headed Daniel Malin. And that's also a big reason why, for example, having that outlet like a Patrick Schick on the other side for Leverkusen is so fundamental because even when you're under pressure, you can always know that last case scenario you can always hoof the ball onto your big target forward and you can hold something up and whereas in Dortmund any ball in a, in a duel between Daniel Malin and Jonathan Ta you already know who's coming out with the ball there yeah that's a really good point I felt like Patrick Schick at least from a sort of finishing perspective which is what a lot of us expect from him didn't have the best of games but he was always where you needed him to be there was a number of times where they were you know Leverkusen were feeding him or they were sort of just you know, putting balls into the box. And, you know, he didn't happen to, uh, <laughs> you know, score one of his uh, thrilling goals on this day. But, like, it was a bedrock on which they could build other types of play, which you could tell for Dortmund was was kind of missing. Hmm. It's interesting you mentioned Holland, who, you know, it's hard not to mention him. He's a hugely exciting player. Uh, every time you watch a Dortmund game in which he doesn't play, they're going to show him on the bench or they're going to show him in the stands because he's just, you know, he's a sensation. But it seems to me that they are a little bereft without him. He has said on social media that he expects to be back sooner rather than later, but there's no specifics attached to any of that. And I'm looking ahead at where Dortmund are going in the next several weeks, and it looks pretty tricky to me. I mean, they're away to Union. They have, you know, a home and away leg in the, you know, Europa League against Rangers, as well as a home match against Gladbach, which sounds easy enough, but then you remember that Gladbach beat them earlier this season. I'm a little worried for them right now. I think the mood both within the club and the perception of them outside could shift if they don't have a good next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think I totally agree. And I think a little bit it's you're almost a victim of the situation now because your gap to to the title or to first place Byron is now nine points. So I think 
you can just about say that's all wrapped up. And but on the other hand, your your gap to dropping out of the Champions League is ten points. So you're almost playing for nothing now. I, I mean, I I like pretty much everyone else don't imagine Dalton now slipping out of the Champions League with that bit of a buffer. And their Europa League, although it's obviously a title, we've seen in the past. I mean, German teams don't traditionally take that competition very seriously. And I mean, the less said about the Dave Babel call as a Dalton fan, the better. So from that point of view, this is now the time for Rosa to try and also make sure that he's really implementing his, his tactics, implementing his system that he wants to get forward so that they can really have a go at it next season. And I think these will be the key game weeks for the higher-ups, the likes of um, Michel Zork and, and, and such, to really see that rules the system and his ideas are getting through to this squad and they're seeing real progression. Yep. You know, I think the jury is very much still out on Marco Rosa in, in a way that, you know, <laughs> the jury came in much quicker on some of the other new coaches for top teams this season, the likes of Van Bommel or Marsh or whatever. But there is definitely still time for things to go south there. And yeah, it's been a weird season in that respect uh, with all these teams who did so well last season trying to roll the dice and <laughs> not rolling <laughs> – you know, sevens or, or whatever is good and craps. I don't play that game. Who cares? Okay, you mentioned that nine-point gap, and I think we should probably, I don't know, scoot over and talk about Bayern and Leipzig. I guess before we do that, maybe one further thought about Leverkusen. I mean, they are now obviously out of the title race. They're 14 points back of Bayern. But I feel like they are – not only achieving a little bit of separation in points, they are now four points above fourth place, but I feel like they're starting to separate themselves in terms of class. They have, have gotten a couple of very nice wins. This win in Dortmund is, is certainly one of them. What do you see as their trajectory for the rest of the season? This, it's been a bit up and down. As you said, they have not looked always defensively particularly solid, so they will take some dips. But how confident are you about their Champions League participation next season? I think that you have to, first of all, say that, I mean, compared to the other sides competing for these places, there's obviously a big gap in spending power in, in the quality of players that Leverkusen has available. So you really would expect Leverkusen on that basis, regardless of the gap in points, to just be in contention at least and be one of your kind of top three for this position after 21 match days. And I think that, like you said, I mean, Leverkusen is a side that has shown in, in stretches their top quality games like today against Dortmund. And then, of course, we've also had defeats along the way that have kind of tempered these expectations. But I think that what Sewan has shown today, especially like we mentioned in switching to that back five, is to have a bit of a keener eye on how we can then ensure that games are, are, are turned off when we get ahead. Does Leverkusen often come out of the gate strong and then surrender late leads? So ensuring that you know, you have the lights of Verts, the obvious players that can really come out strong, get your two goals, three goals, and then maybe adding an extra center back to sit in and go a bit deeper to ensure that you hold a lead rather than going for the four and five and then surrendering another three points and only turning into one. Nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, this is such an explosive team. It's a very hard trick to pull off, but um, <laughs> if you can score four goals by the 55th minute, you know, <laughs> and then pivot to a much more defensive game. You know, that, that that's a great way to pick up points if you can manage it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about the other big, big, big game from the weekend. Uh, at least in terms of, as I said at the beginning of the show, European pedigree. Bayern, who of course have you know. <laughs> 
pedigree coming out their ears uh, were up against RB Leipzig, who, you know, they filled their pedigree can, you know, close to the top, but it, it's not yet overflowing. As we know, Bayern are riding high. They're nine points clear, not only because Dortmund lost that game at home to Leverkusen, but because Bayern came out on top against Leipzig. This was a real back-and-forth game, though. I don't want to sort of oversell Bayern's dominance. It was a a great game for for neutrals, probably a little less so for Leipzig fans who might feel they missed a good opportunity to take some points off of Bayern, considering – a couple of those Bayern goals were like, like, uh, you know, RB coach Domenico Tedesco said, own goals. I mean, one was a real own goal and the other one kind of felt like an own goal was kind of given away to Bayern, said Tedesco. I don't, are you, are you buying that? Are you, are you sort of seeing that as a legitimate or smart way to, to analyze this match or was that more of a, a post game quip from a coach? Yeah, I think a lot of it is probably that spur of the moment you're coming off of a really, really bitter defeat where, like you said, Leipzig really could have gotten a lot more out of this game. And yeah, I think that when you're in front of those cameras at those post-match press conferences on the pitch or in the dugout, it's always difficult to find the right words to, to really get your emotions out in a way that doesn't seem like you're blaming it other circumstances. So I give him a little bit of leeway and say that, you know, it was a fantastic performance by Leipzig. Bayern, of course, performed equally well and probably could have deserved the three points. I don't think you could argue that. But if Leipzig had taken the draw or even the victory, I don't think there would be too many people that could discredit them. So all in all, as a neutral in this perspective, I think that we can all be happy about the game, even if Tedesco is coming off a little bit heated in the end. Yeah, I mean, I can see where he's coming from. I feel like any time a team actually goes toe-to-toe, with Bayern and comes off looking anything other than, you know, clearly second best. It's got to stick in your craw a little bit if you can't earn yourself a point. Be that as it may, I think we can all say that Leipzig look like they are in a completely different place today than they were when, you know, they were at sort of the initial stages of the season. And they really spent the first two and a half months searching for an identity or sort of trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. There's been some interesting quotes from, you know, uh, I think Angelino this week about, you know, really expressing a lot of respect and, and admiration and, and, you know, just likability questions about Jesse Marsh, but being very frank at the same time that like, we are much happier now. We are playing in the way that we like to play. We are playing with possession. This is the way that this particular squad was built, and we're better off now. How exactly are you seeing Leipzig better off under Tedesco? Yeah, I think, like you said, square pegs and round hole is basically how we saw that Jesse Marsh tenure, and it's very much round pegs and round holes now. I think that there's a stat floating around that since Tedesco's arrival, only Byron had picked up more points than Leipzig, so it's definitely showing on the pitch as well. And this was a side that, I mean, many had written off for, for any competition at the beginning of Tedesco's arrival, and now they're just a couple of points away from Champions League, even after the Bayern game now, just three points behind Union and fourth, so it's all still to play for. And like you said, I mean, adapting to to the squad's technical abilities, how they want to play football is really what has seen them garner so much more success. You looked at guys like Angelino, but also Conrad Leimer, Kevin Kampel, Danny Olmo. These are all guys that were brought in to play a more possession-oriented system, specifically a guy like Danny Olmo, who was brought up in that Barcelona tiki-taka football ideology. 
and how he wants to play. You just never could see it really working out with Jesse Marsh and being able to now play around these guys and also still having that really ferocious attacking and vertical identity of a guy like Christopher Nkunku. That's really kind of merged the two ideas, I would say, perfectly. And that's why you also saw them go toe-to-toe with a Bayern side, which is arguably the best in Europe right now. Yeah, despite the fact that they lost, I really came away sort of strengthened in Leipzig in, in, in my view. Speaking, though, about Bayern, real quick, I mean, it's very difficult to sort of heap praise on them week after week. It's 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 what you have to do because, as you say, they are excellent. They're maybe the best in Europe at the moment. But there are, you know, a couple of things that came out of this game or, or coming out of the recent weeks which are a little concerning. Manuel Neuer, he equaled uh, – Oliver Kahn's all-time Bundesliga win record in this game, 310 wins, or, or perhaps he, he surpassed the record, I'm not sure. But in the hours following this game, apparently he was having enough issues with his knee that uh, he went ahead and got it operated on, and he's going to be out for uh, a number of weeks. Speaking of <laughs> best in Europe, I, maybe maybe Manuel Neuer is not really at that height that he once was in past years, but he's still a well above average goalkeeper, let's just say. You know, how, how much do you think that has the potential to affect Bayern over the next, you know, several weeks? It's not clear exactly how long he'll be out, but he will be out for a little while. Yeah, I mean, I think you just need to watch that Leipzig game back again to see. I mean, he had some spectacular saves. We're talking about a 35-year-old that's now been at the peak for so long. And I almost feel like around the continent or even around the globe, people seem to underrate Manuel Neuer just a bit because of his consistency at the top. You know, you almost don't want to keep putting him in that number one spot because it just gets repetitive. But he still is probably at, or, or definitely one of the top three goalkeepers. And we're seeing it again this season, just how adaptable he is and how important he is to this side and the German national team. And I think that's why also his injury, like any injury to a first choice goalkeeper, is, is so important and, and can be so crucial in a side's ability to compete for these top titles. Because not just losing a key player, but I mean, a goalkeeper with that type of stature is also a huge leadership role in a side like this, especially when you look at how young this Bayern backline could be at times with the likes of Ukma Kano, Alfonso Davies, even Lucas Hernandez, who is now only in his second year at the club. These are all players that aren't necessarily the leadership quality at the back like the David Alaba or Jerome Boateng. So losing that could be really crucial beyond just his goalkeeping ability. Yeah, I guess maybe the bigger picture that I was hoping we would get to in a moment is, you know, the possibility that you might lose the likes of Neuer or, or somebody else for good. We've already heard that Niklas Zula, who has, has been there just for a few years, but never quite got to the point where he thought he should be in terms of respect or um, centrality to that side. He's leaving. He's leaving at the end of the season. It's not entirely clear where he's going, but he's he's going somewhere. Corentin Tolisso, who mostly has been a disappointing player at Bayern before very recent months in which he's actually gotten more of a chance and he's shown he's fit in quite well under uh, Julian Nagelsmann. He is seems to be wavering about renewing his contract that expires at the end of June. I can, I can understand why because he's been kind of a bit player uh, over his time. And then, you know, you have the, the 2023 expiring contract group, which includes Serge Gnabry turning slowly into – Maybe uh, a sort of Bayern legend. I think if he sticks around and keeps playing well, he could be a kind of, you know, identifications figure as, as they're, they're always looking for. But really the guys who are in that position now, Manuel Neuer, Thomas Müller, 
Robert Lewandowski, all expiring contracts in 2023. Neuer and uh, Lewandowski haven't really mused much about that. It's, they seem quite clammed up or whatever. But <laughs> it seems like Thomas Müller, who you know is somebody who the, the press loves to talk to because he gives good quotes, they've been asking him about these various things, about Nicolas Zula and about Tolisso and whatnot. And <laughs> Müller decided to remind them, you know, my contract's running out too. And uh, in fact, no one from the club has talked to me about it. And, uh, you know, I'd like to maybe get that sorted out before long. I mean, he's kind of a puckish guy. So maybe he was saying that in somewhat something of jest. But they got some work to do when it comes to sort of future planning. Yeah, most definitely. And you can look at it in the one sense and say, well, there's a lot of talent coming through with the likes of Jamal Luziala, Paul Vanna. But, I mean, these are really abnormal players that you're talking about here. Guys like Thomas Mola, Lewandowski, Neuer. I mean, these are guys that have really had an air at Bayern and possibly the best in, in the club's history. I mean, it, it's no coincidence that they've won the last nine going on ten German championships because they have guys like they're consistently leading the way and, and always title hungry. But on the other hand, you need to look at it and say, I mean, it's not the first time that Bayern have lost big players. You look in recent years, the lights of Ribery and Robin when they departed and everybody said that this would be a huge end of the era. And then you see just a couple years later how Nabry and Coman and now Sané coming into his own players who have immediately stepped up to the plate and taken over. So these are guys that can really, really lead the way. And then I imagine that losing someone like Muller, especially who has been almost a cold figure at the club, I believe he made his debut in, in 2008 or 2009, so more than a decade now that he's been wearing the red of, of Bayern. Losing these players will be will be a huge thing to take for, for the fan base, for the on-field performances, for everything about the club. But making sure then that you wed in guys like Jamal Muziala and then also remain this global enterprise that looks abroad, not just in the Bundesliga, but can also then get players from overseas from the Premier League to make them still interested in a project in the Bundesliga despite... Bayern's trying to foothold on the lead and, and ability to consistently churn out victories is something that will keep you competitive in, in this market, even when, like you say, big players like Neuer, like Muller, and like Zula now most definitely this summer are going to all depart. Yeah, I mean, I'm not convinced that there's a lot more than, you know, faint puffs of smoke surrounding the futures of, of those three very, very key players. But, you know, the likes certainly of Tolisso and to a lesser extent Serge Gnabry, especially after he's seen one of the other wing players in Kingsley Coman get a big payday. He's probably uh, expecting something similar for himself. And unless Bayern are, are happy to pony that money up, why wouldn't he? Okay, let's talk a little bit about Cologne and Freiburg. They squared off on Saturday. It was at least from the sort of table perspective, the sort of the third game which had the most intrigue for Bundesliga viewers. I guess you could describe both as, as surprise packages of this season. Certainly that applies to Cologne. They've really been transformed under Stefan Baumgart. But Freiburg being a team that usually has up seasons and down seasons, it was a little surprising to see them as strong as they are. And, you know, the Billy Goats were even up without Coach Stefan Baumgart, after a close contact of his tested positive for COVID, he needed to isolate for a few days. But as many of us know, that did not slow him down. He took to his his whole sideline antics to the TV room at his house, as you're going to hear right now. Yeah, 
Yeah, that, that's the sound of Baumgart dressed in uh, uh, his usual FC polo shirt and flat cap, screaming at the TV as if he were right on the touchline. You know, taking taking time periodically to send some WhatsApp messages to his assistants. Yeah, we're going to put a link in the show notes uh, if you haven't seen that one. That was certainly a big chuckle generator for a lot of people on social media. But this was not a hugely eventful game. Anthony Modeste's first half goal was was actually all it took to seal the win for Cologne. That and VAR's disallowing of a, of a Freiburg goal due to an offside player, it judged to be an active position in the second half. I think you mentioned earlier in the broadcast, Adam, that um, Leverkusen, with their resources, are sort of a bit above these two sides and they're jockeying for Europe along with, with Union Berlin who is in that group. Do you see Leipzig as another team who, who might well overtake them or do you trust one of these two teams to maybe take it to the last couple of weeks of the season to push for top four? I think you had asked me this question when Jesse Marsh was still the coach and we were seeing a really inconsistent Leipzig. I think I would have been more keen to say a Freiburg or Poland to go all the way and I think that both of those sides definitely deserve it for the amount of work that they've done for in Baumgart's case in the past 12 months or in Freiburg's case over the past decade. But I think that Leipzig in the end will have just more individual quality to ensure that when these tight games happen, that, you know, when a side is sitting in or you're just having a bad day, you still have an Nkunku, you still have a Danny Olmo who can pull something out of nowhere and really get you that win. And when I looked at Freiburg and Colin, I see a very well-organized side, a side that, you know, the entire team knows exactly the right runs to make. They're so well-versed. I look at guys like uh, uh, Vincenzo Grifo or, of course, Anthony Modeste, who are still game winners on their day. But there's just more available in, in Leipzig's attack where you can say, I can bring this man off the bench who can change the game. I can change these two guys around and completely have a new attack. So just in that sense, I think that Leipzig will ultimately just have a bit more. But Freiburg or Cullen being in Europa spot at the end of the season wouldn't surprise me in the least. Yeah, I think that's going to be a very, very interesting race uh, between the three teams that I mentioned just a moment ago and some of the ambitious sides just just below that, you know, the likes of Hoffenheim, Frankfurt, Mites. You know, there could be a, a bit of a dogfight in the final weeks of this season. All right, let's take a little break and then come back and talk about the rest of the games. Okay, here comes part two of Talking Foosball Direct. This is the part where we talk about the rest of the match day just gone, match day 21 in this case. I really think we need to start part two off with a reminder of, of how much these recent ghost games and capacity restrictions have affected Bundesliga sides. I mean, like, like no atmosphere, the drastically reduced ticket revenue, not, not to mention the, the Fox attacks. Well, maybe not that last one everywhere, but, but but in Stuttgart, it was a major factor. Apparently, a group of foxes took up residence in the Mercedes-Benz Arena in the early part of this year when fans were, were mostly absent, and they tore up a bunch of seats and sofas in the, the, the VIP area, as well as voided their bowels all over the place, estimated at a million euros in damage, some expensive couches. On the pitch, on the pitch. Let's go, let's go on the pitch. Uh, Stuttgart were taking on Eintracht at that horribly damaged stadium of theirs. 
I thought they were pretty lively. I thought they probably did enough to get a result, at least a draw in this game. But uh, <laughs> they did not reckon with Aiden Rustich. Yeah, this this is the second half sub from from Australia, who really had made very little impression in a lot of his uh, pre- previous appearances for the Eagles. He scored twice from the edge of the area, both beautiful goals, you know, taken pretty much one touch style, and that proved decisive in this game. It was level at one at halftime. You had two goals for Rusic in the second half, which was more than just the one from Sasha Kalajdzic. Do you do you reckon that Falmouth Bay should feel bad, feel sick? about not taking a point from this game? I think when you look at the table, obviously there's there's good performances won't really get you much at this point. I mean, if you're in, in 17th place, you have 18 points, now four points off Outsport in 16th. Just having good performances won't be enough. And I think that anybody that's a fan of Stuttgart will, will tell you the same. But obviously when we look at where they came from, you know, they hadn't scored a single goal in over 518 minutes. So this is a side that had completely lost their touch in front of goal. And not just the two goals, but overall the fret levels that they had throughout the game. I mean, that Sosa and, and Kalajic, that pairing finally getting on the store sheet again together, which was so fruitful last season. And then obviously Silas again, I believe that was his first start since um, Terry his ACL in, in the end of last season. So seeing these familiar faces come back and can really liven this attack up. And I think that they should on a talent level still have enough to stay up. It just depends if they can now make up that four-point gap to 16th. Yeah, that's beginning to be a little bit worrisome. Stuttgart have been bad this season. We all know this. Uh, but they have mostly been keeping relegation at arm's length or at least um, being sort of, you know, in and around the relegation playoff spot at worst. Right now, they are now four points adrift from safety. Like they, um, if the season ended today, they would be going straight down to the Zweite Bundesliga. I mean, obviously the season doesn't end today and there's plenty of time for them to save themselves, all that talent and such and such and such and such. When comes the time for Stuttgart, Sven Mislintat, the sort of board, whatever, to think about maybe changing things up. Obviously, uh, for for this podcast's listenership, we've all kind of invested a lot in uh, Pellegrino Matarazzo, uh, at least especially the, the American listeners of this. Um, he's been a pleasant presence on the touchline. He was so successful with this team last season. But this team is bad right now. I mean, they, they had a pretty good game at home to uh, Eintracht. They didn't win it. Is there a point at which they might start to get a little nervous about all the money they stand to lose and, uh, you know, <laughs> call up Bruno <laughs> or whatever? I think it's it's a really difficult situation because what you're almost saying is, do we give up our kind of long-term plans, our long-term future, which is actually pretty pretty prospective you know there's a lot of good things about where this side can be in two to three years when you look at what players you have available to ensure that 100 percent that we have a better chance of survival or do we take that gamble to to stay with Matarazzo to maintain this really forward first attacking gung-ho system and then hope that we barely straight by but then ensure that we you know, keep the same philosophy going, maintain these players that are so attractive to so many clubs around, the, around Europe and then can build from that platform again in our third year. So you're almost taking that risk and it's probably one that keeps Mislintat up at night because 
yeah, like you say, I mean, there's so much at stake now for VfB Stuttgart, like so many sides down at the bottom. Yeah, it's just looking at that bottom section of the table, you got a couple of, you know, quote unquote, smaller clubs, uh, Augsburg and Bielefeld. But then just a real, you know, for Stuttgart, Hertha, Gladbach and Wolfsburg, relegation would be a disaster for any of those teams in terms of, of, you know, both the money you lose and the sort of ambitious long-term plans that, you know, any of them might have at the moment. It's also going to be interesting down there. But we, we should, we should talk a little bit about Eintracht before we uh, move on from this matchup, even though we're, you know, we're in the back half of the show. We don't have to talk a lot. I was impressed that they, uh, Got a result in this one because this was certainly the kind of game that uh, would be very easy to you know either draw or lose. But the fact that they're getting contributions from players who, let's face it, haven't con- contributed quite a lot uh, up to now is is a great sign for them that they actually can rely on their bench for production like this. Yeah, I think that Eintracht is a really interesting side this this season. They were probably one of the most boring sides in the division in the opening 10 games. I remember all those draws. It was oh, yeah. very typical Glasner football. It's the Glasner effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, I mean, in recent weeks, they've been they've been extremely exciting. I looked at that that duo of Rafa Beret and Jesper Lindstrom and the energy that they have going forward. Lindstrom, of course, not always the most reliable as a finisher, but everything up to that point, he does exceptionally well. And like you said, I mean, they did goals from so many different avenues. You have a guy like Evan Indico who's consistently a threat at corner kicks, Tuta as well. And like we saw today, I mean, I don't think anybody had Aydin Hristic in their fantasy Bundesliga team, but for any of the Aussies out there who, who perhaps have a bit of a soft spot, I mean, they made big points. So kudos to them, I guess. Yeah, for real, for real. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about Wolfsburg. This, of course, has been one of the big stories of the season. They're dropping like an absolute boulder from the heights that they reached last season, you know, finishing a Champions League place to spending time in or near the relegation spots this season. Early on, it looked like maybe they had growing pains under Van Bommel, that they pulled the plug quite quickly on that. And after a very brief period of resurgence under Florian Kohfeldt, they went right back to sucking. But, you know, they broke the ice this week. They they won 4-1 at home to Kreuter uh, Fürth. That not only gives them f- three big points, but also some further separation between them and, and the likes of Fürth. This was their first win since match day 11. And, you know, they made some moves in the transfer market. They uh, got rid of Alt Weichhorst. They brought in Max Kruse. They uh, bought that Danish striker whose name eludes me at the moment. And, you know, those guys went straight into the, the lineup. But it was actually Aster Franks, who they already had, uh, who was who was the hero on the day. Two goals. What did you like about Wolfsburg's breakout? It's always you always need to start with the caveat that it was against Kreuter Fürth, right? I mean, that's always a, a good way to start this. But I think at this point, I mean, points against a direct relegation rival is 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 what you want. And and if you look at the table, I mean, there was not a lot of movement this this round of fixtures, but. Wolfsburg going from 15th to 12th. I mean, that's a major jump, even though it's still a two-point gap now to 16th place Augsburg. That does, in a sense, give you a bit of breathing room to at least keep the dogs at bay for another game week. And we saw going into this, you know, 
Leverkusen against Dortmund, Bayern against Leipzig, those are our kind of top fixtures that everybody wanted to watch. But when we talked about the most important one, it was definitely this one. Florian Kohlfeldt, his job was on the line. Your Schmucke, even as a sporting director, his job was hanging in the balance. So a lot was riding on this. And although it wasn't exactly free-flowing football, which I don't think we've ever seen at Wolfsburg since probably Kevin De Bruyne was there all those years ago. But a win's a win, and that's kind of what you need in this relegation dogfight. And I don't think anybody will be too upset at this point. Yeah, okay. So Max Kruse, they didn't spend a lot of money on him in terms of transfer fee, but we hear they are spending quite a lot of money on his salary. That is uh, precisely the reason why Kruse left the very steady and, um, you know, improving Union Berlin to go to the uh, sort of (laughs) maybe sinking ship that is Wolfsburg. But I I get it. I get it. Everybody likes to get paid. He didn't get on the score sheet, did not uh, leave a huge impression on this game, maybe. Uh, Jonas Wind, I'll, I'll say his name this time because, you know, I, I had a moment to look it up. He didn't score either. Did you see signs from either of those guys that they um, could leave some, you know, positive impressions down the line? Yeah, I think Mats Kruse more so just in his career, you could say the signs that he's left. I mean, he's, I believe, played over 300 games in the top flight. And most importantly, the fact that some of his best seasons have now been in these latter few years. I remember that 2018-19 campaign when he had 10 plus goals and assists, and that was for Bremen, a, a Kofeld-led Bremen. So there's definitely signs that Kruse can be a real ace in Kofeld's pocket again for Wolfsburg. And he almost has that don't care attitude a little bit that, that can help a side like this in a relegation battle. You know, when he's not halfway deep in a tub of Nutella or smoking a shisha late at night. He is quite a good footballer on his day. So maybe he doesn't bring all the running that you need, but he's a player that, that didn't have that moment of magic, which, I mean, an outsport, a Bielefeld, a food just don't have. Yeah, yeah. His middle name is DGAF. Okay, thinking a little bit about Kruse, the other side of the Kruse coin, Union Berlin, they're post Cruza life got off to kind of a poor start in, in Augsburg. They went down 2-0. Union keeper Andreas Luta had a, had sort of a poorly judged pass. Another, another example of when playing out of the back goes bad. He turned the ball over. Eventually that turned into uh, an, an open door for Michel Gregorich to score the opener. Andre Hahn followed that up for Augsburg with a goal from distance that you know, was almost as sweet as his teammate Nicholas Dorsch's earlier this season. Please uh, look it up. It's nice. I don't know if we want to sort of go as far as to say that there was a Cruza-shaped hole in Union on the day. That's probably a little too simplistic. But going forward, not only losing Max Cruza, but also losing Marvin Friedrich to Borussia Mönchengladbach. I know that it is the Union way to sort of take on reclamation projects, you know, sand the edges off of players, polish them up a little bit and and make some money. It's a risky game, I think. What's your take? Like you say, I think that obviously this deal was done with the thought behind it being that, you know, we have safety. We have top flight safety, so we've achieved our seasonal goal. And although everybody, of course, wants to play European football, this isn't the business model that Union Berlin is, is operating with. And you see so many times these instances where clubs hang on too long and then almost the the typical example, Icarus flying too close to the sun, burn their wings, and then it's straight back down. So I think that from a business sense, you say 
made all the right decisions. But of course, ultimately, this is football. And, and from that point of view, Matsuzawa is a major gap. And we saw it already today. I mean, the fact that they didn't get on the score sheet shows just what, what they're leaving behind without Cruz in there is almost a creative linchpin, you know, to get a guy like Awani into more goal scoring positions because for all of Awani's strengths, it isn't necessarily creating chances himself. He needs a guy like Cruz who can put him through on goal, get him into these situations where he's dangerous. And with the lights of Haraguchi and Sheraldo um, Becker, there's just not the guy that, that can play that final third pass, which Cruz is so renowned for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the two who you mentioned just there were the players who sort of played in, in Cruz's spot on the day. And, of course, they did also pick up uh, Sven Mikkel uh, from from Paderborn. But <laughs> I think you could put Genki Haraguchi, Geraldo Becker, and Sven Mikkel together, and you still wouldn't get the production you would get out of a Max Cruz. He is, he is that good. Maybe sparing a thought for Augsburg, they seem to have – I don't know. This I thought this was was a strong performance from them. Certainly, eyes across the Atlantic have been on them uh, a lot more as of late. It's it's very strange uh, having having a you know USMNT Twitter <laughs> paying attention to FSA Augsburg performances and results. Of course, we didn't have uh, old Ricardo Pepe in the squad this weekend. I guess his his, his broken nose in that uh, final <laughs> ice bowl game against uh, Honduras meant that he did not take part. Any quick thoughts about his sort of early adjustment period and, and where you think this is headed. His sporting director was on, on Double Pass, uh, the, the German sort of football talk show earlier today, saying that, you know, he didn't want to put any pressure on him. He didn't want him to sort of the expect, expectations to be too high and that they are, they see him as a, as a long-term investment. Are you still, are you high on, on this, this idea? Yeah, I think the, the the first point to start is, of course, all the American transfer business that we've seen this winter to Germany. I mean, you have the traditional Der Klassiker with Dortmund versus Bayern and then the American Der Klassiker between Armenia Bielefeld with George Bello and FC Outsports Ricardo Pepe. So can't wait for all those viewers to tune into a real German classic there. But I think the key point in your statement is, is that long term, right? Because if you look at the table right now with Outsports sitting in 16th, Long-term isn't a possibility if you're playing Zweite Liga football with a, a 16 million euro player. I mean, those are the type of guys that you need to get off your wage bill, need to get off to, to bring in some funds if you get relegated. So from that sense, I see a signing like Ricardo Pepe in the January winter when you know you're in such a dire state. Really, really odd because, I mean, Pepe for all his talents in the MLS had a, had a really good rookie year, but... It wasn't like he was storing a goal every single game. And moving to the Bundesliga, regardless of his talents, is a step up. And we've seen other players, even even more talented than him, falter at this stage. So I think that in the long term, if Augsburg remain in the Bundesliga, I think this is a spectacular deal that will see them also gain healthy profits. But I don't necessarily see Ricardo Pepe having a huge impact in these first few months. And that is, at the end, what Augsburg needed to get them out of this mess. Yeah, I was pretty wary about this move from the beginning, just considering the circumstances that surround Augsburg and surround his price tag. But, you know, if they can get it done without him having to contribute very much, which has been, been the case so far, and he can just stick around in the top flight, I think that's great. I mean, truthfully, if he didn't have that huge price tag, I would think it would be fine for him to go down to the Zweite Liga because, you know, that's that's a great place for, for strikers to build confidence. 
But yeah, let's keep an eye on it. Yeah, you mentioned George Bello a moment ago. We'll get to him in a second. But his uh, his team, his team, his team, Armenia Bielefeld, they were 1-1. They finished 1-1 against Borussia Mönchengladbach at home. Uh, one of the probably the best atmospheres from the weekend in that uh, they were st- – I think there was 10,000 fans allowed in at the Alm, which, you know, for that sort of a stadium, that's that's like – you know, more than half full. So it sounded pretty sweet, actually. However, Borussia Mönchengladbach, I think, I think they had plenty of chances to, to, to win this game, but they just couldn't quite manage to do it. I think the Foles, they equaled that early goal from Yanni Serra. Pretty, pretty nice goal, that one, with their own goal, uh, with, sorry, not their own goal, like as, as an own goal, but just their own goal, courtesy of Alessandro Playa, but, you know, couldn't, couldn't get it over the line. George Bello, 20 minutes. Not very long. What would you make of him? I thought he looked exciting. I think you right away see what his best attribute is, and that's definitely his pace. And I think that as a left back in the Bundesliga for for a side like Bielefeld, you can definitely use someone like that. I think that it, what I struggle to see is how he necessarily comes up to speed with what is a very, very structured um, a Bielefeld side. Yeah, I mean, you look at the fact that they've only conceded 27 goals after 21 game weeks, and this is for a side that's 15th in the league. I mean, that's less than Leverkusen, less than Dortmund, two sides at the very top. So this is a side that has a ton of structure defensively, and bringing in a young player like that in, in January, I think he'll initially see a lot of his minutes come off the bench like we saw in this game where he uses that raw pace and dynamism to cause a threat, but I don't see him necessarily coming into this starting 11 just yet. And I think the big reason for that is also because despite their lowly position, Bielefeld is actually on a, on a pretty good run of form. They're six games unbeaten now, which is the longest in the Bundesliga. And, and in fact, Bayern or Dortmund haven't even been on that long of an unbeaten streak this season. So there's a lot going right right now for, for front traumas, Bielefeld side. And I, I do see them on current form remaining in the division. But I mean, as we said, it's so tight down there. Two bad games and then you're right away down at the bottom. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very hard to judge this team. They have they have very little, you know, firepower. But as you mentioned, they are very hard to beat, hard to score against. They're able to sort of strangle uh, a lot of games, which is not what you expect from a team uh, at that that sort of part of the table. I was a little concerned. I too shared this sort of excitement at watching uh, his pace going forward, but I was also quite worried because there was a, a couple of Gladbach counterattacks where there was just, oh my God, there was an ocean of space on that, uh, that, that area of the pitch where you would think a left back would be doing things, defending, taking up space, you know, cutting off passing. And he was just caught way upfield. And, uh, I think he was a little lucky. Uh, not to have ended this game with at least a little bit of egg on his face. So we'll, we'll see how that develops. Yeah, maybe just a just a jut in right there. Maybe nobody let George Bello know that European soccer has relegation. Maybe he's still still playing with that MLS philosophy that oh you know we lose the game but get a better draft pick over over the the next season. So <laughs> hopefully he becomes accustomed to relegation rules in Europe very soon and can start to iron out some of these defensive deficiencies. Yeah, yeah, and and to be fair also, like I mean they bought him for a reason. Frank Kama put him on the pitch for a reason. It's, po- it's very possible that, you know, he sent him on the pitch saying, you know, go forward make something happen and you know they understood exactly what they were getting into so i i don't want to say this is this is you know a, a knock on him any quick thoughts about gladbach they are just still stuck in the muck and they can't 
they can't really finish. They they look like they're really straining right now. Yeah, I think it's not good to talk about Gladbach on a podcast because you're almost lost for words, right? You don't know what to say about it because it's just very hard to kind of wrap your head around what's all gone wrong to, to see a side that was in the knockout stage of the Champions League last season now really in a relegation battle and in the fight for top flight survival. And, of course, you have to mention also Mats Abel's departure, which is huge news for the Gladbach fan base. Just, I mean, this is a man that was a player since 1999, then moved over to sporting director in 2008, and he's really overseen a club that was almost yo-yoing between the second division and the first division, and for long stretches of time now has been a stable Champions League outfit. I mean, obviously, the fact that they're in a relegation battle right now doesn't look look great for his tenure in charge, but he's really been the key man to see Gladbach rise into such a prominent role in German football. So, yeah, it's a new horizon um, coming up at the at, at Gladbach and seeing how they adapt with, with what is a, a coach under pressure, a, a team which is relatively old and, and coming to the end of the cycle. A lot will change there. And if it's going to be in the Bundesliga or the second Bundesliga, well, we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I don't think that club would necessarily handle going down very well uh, just because they've been they've been they've been breathing a very different type of air <laughs> for the last decade or so due to the good work of of Max Abel. Yeah, if you weren't aware already, we did an entire podcast uh, Nick Wildhagen and uh, Manny Breuer of the uh, Folkhauter Abroad, which is a, a Gladbach centered podcast talking about the Max Abel era. Uh, if if you you know, want a little bit more on that subject, please do check it out, listeners. A couple more games. We can sort of knock them down quick. Mainz and Hoffenheim. This one was nil-nil for ages until Mainz actually put in two goals in the final 11 minutes. I did not see this game. I, I, I was watching other games at the time, but I hear it was actually quite exciting despite the, the, the long wait for goals. Where do you see these two teams shaking out? They've been sort of cheek by jowl for a lot of this season. You know, one would be up sort of on the fringes of Europe while the other one was in mid-table, and then they'd sort of switch positions at times. Uh, so this was a pretty even game. Yeah, Hoffenheim in particular, they've really been on a roller coaster ride. It wasn't too long ago that we were talking about the informed side in Europe all the way up to third in the Bundesliga. Now they're back down to eighth again. So to see them kind of go in this up and down form shows that they're maybe not just ready to, to be a, a top European contender, but there's so much talent in that side. And we saw that again, just just that finishing touch, you know, turning turning chances into goals is what this side is lacking because you look like a guy like David Rome, who is undoubtedly going to be a big fixture of the German national team in the future and other young talents like Jorginho Ruter and even bringing in now Finn Ola Becker from the Zweite Bundesliga in January, who be a big signing for next season. There's a lot of hopeful signs at Hoffenheim that this is a side that's built for the future, even though today or, or, or over the weekend it didn't necessarily transpire in a victory. Yeah, this definitely seemed like a game that could have gone the other way. Finally, we had a game which I unfortunately watched in its entirety. It was probably the, the, the crappiest one of the weekend. It was Hertha versus Bochum. What would have made me think that that would have been a good game? A 1-1 draw in the end, you know, the old tale of two halves situation. It was uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, sort of, Possession dominance and, and a few good chances for Hertha in the first half. Only one goal, however, and then uh, a really frustrating goalkeeping error in the second half, which, you know, not only gave uh, Bochum an equalizer, but 
also totally messed up the XG for the game. When you look at it, it looks like, you know, Bochum were totally dominant. When really, if you give somebody the ball in front of goal with no goalkeeper in front of them, that's something like a 100% chance for your XG. I don't know if you had the the misfortune of watching this game, but I, uh, as so often watching my team this season was frustrated. Yeah, I think there's nothing better than Friday night Bundesliga football until you see that it's Hertha versus Bochum on. That's kind of takes a bit of a down note. And and it really did, like you say, feel like a tale of two halves because there was moments in that first half where Hertha really put in their best performance of the season. I remember almost at a five-minute stretch where they just won every single second ball, constantly applying pressure and just didn't get that final touch. But it looked like they were completely all over Bochum and you know, seeing Stefan Jovetic and Isha Belfadil finally lead the line together again, you see the quality that those two have and, and their link-up ability, something we haven't seen often this season, but when they've played together, they've looked pretty bright. But then you see, of course, Bochum, who are a big threat on the counter. I think unlike many Bundesliga sides, they're very content with just soaking up the uh, opposition pressure, sitting back and then hoping to just unleash Garrett Holdman and his quick feet on the break and you know, against a Hertha side who are well out of form, that seems to be enough. And Bochum will be more than happy to just get another point to towards safety. Yep, yep, indeed. I think certainly Bochum have had their sort of – they've zeroed in on their goal from the beginning of the season, which is stay in the league at all costs. And uh, it, <laughs> I think Hertha did not quite figure out that that was going to have to be their goal until maybe week seven or eight. Yeah, next week for them I think is going to be really crucial. They have uh, their way to Fürth, which, you know, as we saw, Wolfsburg were able to handle them, at least from my perspective. Hopefully, Hertha will be able to do the same. But um, you can't settle for another draw in that one, hanging around the bottom of the table as they are. Yeah, I think we can all breathe a little bit of sigh of relief that Leipzig versus Cullen is now greeting us on Friday instead of another one of these relegation battle straps that everybody's a bit bored of after the first 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. If if only that sexy first half could have turned into a two or three goal lead instead of a one nil, uh, you know, if, if wishes were horses, all that stuff. Well, that is it for this edition of Talking Foosball Direct. It was produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. Sweet to have you back on, Adam. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And the second time's a charm. Hopefully we make the hat trick happen as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I can see it on the horizon. You, of course, can follow him on Twitter at XXAdamConXX, as well as participate in his uh, Breaking the Lines spaces over on Twitter. Uh, He's also got an excellent sub stack you might want to subscribe to. More info is on his Twitter profile. If you want to contact me over there, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman. Talking Football Extra, that'll be coming up in... In a couple of days, talk football fantasy. They'll be back uh, to get you ready for match day 22. And don't forget that scandal series over on Patreon. It just keeps on going. Best some next and